Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast, place to talk all things software and technology. I'm your host, Ben Popper, joined as I often am by my colleague, Ryan Donovan. And today we have a guest, Omar De La Rosa, who uh, works on things software and AI ML related over at Spotify. Ryan, you want to introduce our guests since you two know each other? Yeah, sure. Um, I know Omar from uh, back when we were both at Grubhub. Every time we get together, we, we seem to talk about AI and LLMs and all sorts of tech. And I figured maybe we should do that uh, on the podcast. He's a longtime listener, first time talker. Ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Great. Yeah, true story. I always say, if you're listening to the show and you want to come on, we're not that busy. Come on, hit us up. So glad to have you here, Omar. <laughs> glad to be here. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll dive into all things AI, LLM, and my deep and abiding love for Spotify and its algorithm in a bit, I promise. Let's just, we'll, we'll quickly cover off on a few CES gadget-related items, and then we'll move on. So the hit of the show was the Rabbit. Mm -hmm. They sold out of their first run of 10,000. It's a little object that supposedly can take actions for you, like, hey, I want to book a flight, mm -hmm. and it'll do it. Hey, I want to call an Uber, hey, I want to, and it'll do it. It says it mm -hmm. spins up like a virtual machine in the cloud. You teach it how to do it, and then you've got your own little computer. Mm. How that's going to work with permissions and APIs and privacy are really hard to say, but it captured people's attention. And I think we are all craving some of the magic that ChatGPT delivered in a form factor that's portable, that gets us to that, you know, like that movie, Her, where you're asking the computer to do something and on your behalf, it's taking actions on your machine, whatever that may be. Yeah. I mean, we, we talked about this a little uh, last time, but I think, you know, a lot of people have been complaining about the smartphone as like a big giant time suck. So if mm. you can get a sort of simplified version where you're just like, I just want to, you know, find out how to get a flight. I don't want to have to check my Twitter mentions or, you know, who invited me to their birthday party. Right. For cutting down on your screen time, video gaming and social media consumption, this device is for you. One other thing I thought was fun, just a quick shout out to Affectionate Intelligence. That is how LG is branding its AI, which will be inside of its washing machines, refrigerators, microwaves, and everything else LG coming soon. So not scary. Yeah. Affectionate. Affectionate. Yeah. I think, I think you can take anything and you spin it with affectionate, and I, I just feel warm and fuzzy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like a very uh, a sentient washing machine, affectionate. Yeah, it's going to be right. really gentle on your socks. <laughs> it's going to make them fluffy yeah. and soft and warm. Yeah. All right. And then uh, one other quick thing that came out of CES that I just had to give a shout out to is a phone case that gives you a physical keyboard. So if you have been missing your BlackBerry days, if you have an iPhone, but you want to go clickety-clack, <laughs> there is now a device for you. And yeah, that's kind of fun. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think this one resonated with me. Yeah. Well, sort of, yeah, because I, I actually, when uh, iPhones came out, did not get one. Uh, my very first smartphone was like a Motorola Click, but one of the ones that had like the little keyboard. Yeah. And I don't think I miss it now, but I think I'm still very bad at on-screen keyboard typing speed. Mm. Yeah, I usually use the the swipe to type, but I do hate the tiny keyboards. Yeah. I don't... <laughs> I don't think this this holds any appeal to me. I always, you know, even on a laptop, I'm like, give me a full size keyboard, give me the twenty dollar generic keyboard. That's the mm, the chef kiss of keyboards. Yeah, oh, yeah. 
more and more I find myself dictating even in a situation where I could type because the error rate is lower. Mm. It's just, it's getting so good at it. Like it knows where to mm. put the periods and the question marks. It's, it's quite adept these days. Yeah. I got to try it more. I, I think I don't trust dictation. I have yeah. dabbled because there's some family members that really love voice notes. Mm-hmm. But I got to see it. It's probably a lot better now that it's been since I last checked. Yeah. Should trust. And I'm sure they can train on your, your voice and get the perfect uh, dictation translation for you specifically. Oh, so wait. Uh, yeah, now you've unlock something do you think it personalizes like you think it's training to know my voice better each time like the more i use it doesn't now it will be (laughs) i think it does do certain things i'm not sure if it's dictation but it's just it's just ios and maybe an android but like if you type the name of a child over and over and over again you know eventually it learns not to auto correct that and other things along that so it kind of it gets a little bit personalized to you yeah oh i like that the, the classic uh ducking correct yeah exactly all right ryan this is a podcast about software and technology. You brought a link today that's a little bit more on the software side. We're going to talk about time travel and programming. I'm excited. Yeah. So spotted this over on, on Hacker News. Somebody created a little toy programming language called Mariposa, which incorporates time travel. <laughs> the way that it works is that one of the, the primitives in it is a now function that captures the current instance. And you can say T equals now. And then at T, set a variable or something. So it'll let you do things out of order. If you say mm-hmm. X equals one, then T equals now. And then say at T, X equals two. If you print it before the at T, it'll be X equals two. Mm-hmm. So every so. variable is like a little little time capsule or like, I guess, like a historical journal. <laughs> yeah, it captures the the context of, of at T. And... There was a lot of um, additional stuff in there about how it has these improper variables that include the sort of instance location and a memory address of a variable. So it keeps a track of all of those variable values at each instance. Sounds interesting. Yeah. As for the, the, you know, the use for it, I'm not sure. Well, it, it almost sounds like there's almost an anti-pattern with a lot of functional programming to like introduce time and state. And this just like leans in. It's like, no, it's all all time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I, I mean, I believe that it's implemented in Haskell. So there you go. Oh, of course. Okay, yeah. So they've addressed that. This is that. for the philosopher developers out there, if it's in Haskell. That's right. That's right. <laughs> if you want to uh, study the effects of time, on your programming. <laughs> All right. So Omar, one of my favorite stories that I ever wrote when I was at The Verge was about Spotify's Discover Weekly algorithm. Mm-hmm. And I have been a heavy participant in curating my playlists and like songs ever since. And I, I diligently listen to it every Monday just so it knows I'm, I'm there and giving feedback and I appreciate it. And um, it delivers me a lot of gems. It's probably the software in my life that brings me the most joy on a weekly basis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day... You know, I thought the useful insight there was take a look at the playlist I've made, take a look at playlists other people have made that are very similar, but have some songs that I don't have and show me these because you're you're matching me to somebody who has kind of similar taste. Right, right. I don't know if you have any particular insight into this, but that was many years ago. From your vantage point, working on stuff related to ML Spotify, is that still how it works? Is there new magic kind of cooking around the edges? And what are you working on and excited about um, at the moment? 
Oh, so I, I currently work on the personalization department, but I, I'll just start by saying I do not actively work on Discord, but I'm also a big user. But essentially what uh, the algorithm more or less like consumes, like the models consume various features. And I think something that you're getting to is how over time, I think models have started to blend a lot more. Like it used to kind of be a pure like user to user, right? you know, essentially like user space. Mm-hmm. That would be like your user features, how your behavior translates. Right. Mm-hmm. But I think you could think about it as like a blend. You can imagine that there's like track feature space and user feature space. And in both cases, you're going to get completely different mappings. Like if you take any track, you can just almost come up with like a vector coordinate in these two spaces that are completely positionally very different, very far apart from each other. And I think like Discover Weekly is an example of one. And and by the way, you're going to get a lot of experiments. So things often change from week to week, depending on new models and, and whatnot. But in general, like, I think there are multiple spaces, multiple vector spaces that are considered when forming it. And, and I think as a, as a whole, like, it, it maybe just in an industry level, like a lot of recommender systems have shifted away from like pure, pure user space, space, right. nearest neighbor lookups in these, you know, these vector spaces, because they have these pathological optima, like a bunch of people gathering together, listening to like some related tracks end up giving you a, a much narrower, or they'll lead you to these little, like, you can think of them as like little attractors in this right, space right. that often aren't even good it's like it'll cluster if you will right yeah. into these little it, pockets it loses the element of of surprise right exactly and and i think there's this kind of like shift toward you know making sure you you get your healthy food and your candy that right. no <laughs> element of surprise is like eating all candy it's just right. reinforcing your existing taste over and over again right right but now it'll kind of take into consideration track space which mm-hmm. could be a factor of you know sonic features maybe of your track or content right. itself like getting vectorized yeah. if you're talking about articles like in systems that use like text maybe the vector space would only take into consideration like the text data and relate tracks to each other or articles to each other. And so, you know, I think over time, it's it's neither one or the other, but there are different, like, mixtures of these things. And the idea being that if we show you sometimes a blend of things that are reinforcing your own preferences, but mixed in with songs that are probably near the ones you like right. in mm-hmm. content space, mm-hmm. you're going to get you know your your diet right. is gonna be a right. lot healthier i mean look maybe not everybody is uh, like me i might be an outlier but yeah my, my taste is pretty eclectic you know it can vary across a lot of genres and decades and so i think that i enjoy when it's giving me a new direction and i am always having this silent internal dialogue about how and when and whether i should be sending signals like if I skip mm-hmm. the rest of this track, is that sending a negative signal? If I listen to it all the way through, is that sending a positive signal? Should I like this track? Should I put it on a playlist? You know, like I want, obviously the algorithm should also surprise me, but like, you know, I want to be giving it the right feedback <laughs> right, <laughs> so, right. To, to let it know when it's done something that I appreciate. And I'm, it's not always clear. It's a little opaque to me. Now you have to listen to music just to talk to the algorithm. 
<laughs> it is a dialogue. It's always I'm willing dialogue. to put in some work, you know? I'm, yeah. I'm willing to put in some work. Well, on my side. the good news and the bad news is that sometimes your signals make a big difference. Like if there's a model that leans very heavily, like what I'm calling user space includes behavioral data. So it's essentially like your clicks or like your like favorites, things like that might be considered like in this bucket that I'm giving kind of like user space. So if you're talking about um, like a track, having a coordinate in your user taste profile, it's going to be related to those those attributes that you said. When you get into like how the model that you're currently seeing like on a given week, like how much it's actually using that. Again, not to, not to be hopeless, but uh, if you're seeing a model that's like, you know, on a particular week, we're testing something like more content driven, they may ignore your behavioral actions from the previous week. They may not look at them at all. Like, let's say on that given week, we were, in some cases, there was a model candidate that was like really uh, trying to figure out a very good content recommender. Mm -hmm. I know Spotify has a long history of kind of trying to understand the music itself. There was a exactly this API, exactly. the the Echo Nest that Spotify purchased that was like dividing up songs into beats and like there was a infinite jukebox kind of grew out of that and i wonder you know how much has that stayed in that sort of like echo nest like figuring out the semantic qualities sort of outside of a vector space right so first of all like after that acquisition i think a lot of people from there still work at the company um mm -hmm. there's a couple people i've met that are like definitely still around and the data sets and the, the, the know-how and the tech that kind of came from EchoNest, I'd say there's still so many things, you know, in our stack that, that do care about the sonic qualities. Mm -hmm. Let me actually say there's actually more to it than just sonic qualities. But basically, you have like, um, again, track space or content mm -hmm. space. It does take into consideration a whole host of features like about the song itself. And like the example I always give is like, is there something that you could take the wave form and compute mm -hmm. analytically, like mm -hmm. BPM or, you know, and even things like key or tempo or the, the cues and like all the things that you said, I think even if it's hard, they can be computed analytically. And those are like a very much a part of, again, it's not like every single model every week uses all of those but mm -hmm. it's part of the, the consideration like if there's if you think of the ai as an agent it right. sometimes chooses like certain features of interest and sometimes it mm -hmm. doesn't mm -hmm. interesting so you know you mentioned there's track space do these two things sort of fit near each other in the vector universe of musicality or genre there's the user space ryan just mentioned you know maybe there were efforts to sort of like figure out this flavor profile of music, you know, what it, what is this qualitative bit of music that we can group together? Are there other ones that you use that you think are important? Are there any other, you know, like key vector databases, let's call them, you know, different different vector groups that you might use? Actually, to be honest, the answer is infinity because you can actually always create <laughs> strong answer. Latent. Yeah, it, well, I think it's because it's easy to look at these as like these very stable spaces but they're very arbitrary. Like, 
for example, like I can actually create a, a, a three dimensional space. That's just like the number of seconds a track is in duration. It's BPM and like the word count of its like mm. title. And I don't know what we would call that space and it's useless probably, but you could right. make a recommender just yeah. on that. And it, it could be great. It turns out I really love 140 BPM <laughs> songs with 14 letter titles. That's right. like my jam. They're always good. It's that undeniable. would be a great system. That model there. I think that would work for emo music, but uh, nothing else. <laughs> yeah. Or or metal, like like the higher the BPM, like it creates a right. little cluster. Like yeah, exactly. The more double kick drum there is, and the more satanic references in the title, the more likely I am to enjoy it. It's simple. Yeah. Simple math. So that's one possibility. So that's a like let's create our own space. Mm. Pretty easy to do. But also, I should mention that I'm not like an ML researcher. I'm a back end engineer on the personalization team. So. Uh, some of the terminology I'm going to say, I, I hope uh, it's not like the most academically correct. Right. So right. you'll you'll be intelligently wrong. Uh, yeah. Exactly. I'll be intelligently wrong. But um, the other type of space you could think of as a latent space where, for example, like, let's say that we have user space and track space and we take those vectors. So like one is like, you know some number of dimensions, let's say like one is like three dimensions, one is five dimensions. And we concatenate those coordinates and we make an eight dimensional vector. And then we train a model on that, you know, to like read that as an input and then have some classification on the other side. There would be a new space created that is mm. essentially a second degree space, like one that you take two other spaces and you do some kind of transformation and then you create a new vector. Or you put it through a model that spits out a vector. But basically, you can essentially combine like these things that have nothing to do with each other. Mm -hmm. In fact, let's call our BPM space, our little arbitrary toy 3D space. You could actually tack that on. So mm -hmm. you could get a recommender that takes traditional user space, in your terms, the vector database of users, yeah. of user behavioral data. You have content data. And then you can tack on your BPM space. And you can now create a little vector of like 11 dimensions. That is this whole new thing. Right. I mean, that makes sense because there are playlists on Spotify that say like study time, exercise, yeah. right. you know, and I assume that they're doing some BPM stuff, but it would be nice, right, if those were not just random songs, but personalized for me and with, you know, that kind of layer that you talked about added on. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I think that that's actually closer to where, like, you know, the experimentation and the research and a lot of this, it actually kind of comes into play with, with that. Like, everything else I told you is kind of like 20-year-old, like, recommender system-like mm, right. basics. Like, actually, back when we used to work at Grubhub, uh, that, that has been around for quite a long time. Yeah. Um, and it's pretty standard. We did an article with uh, Discovery Warner Brothers talking about their recommender systems, and a lot of it was nearest neighbor stuff. Yeah, and, and it's not to say that that's not very much a part of what we do right now, but the hard part and where I think a lot of the cutting edge stuff sort of gets into is how do you make the vector? And then, you know, nearest neighbors is like simply just the query or the lookup or how you like make sense of that. But it's literally like how you make that vector space or how you combine vector spaces into meaningful, like, let's say put 
data or content into meaningful locations in these large dimensional vector spaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, and stability. <laughs> I forgot to mention that. Uh, the backend engineer just mentioned stability as an afterthought? Come on now. Oh, no, no. Okay, so I, I mean stability in, a, in another gotcha, way. Gotcha. Let's go back to our BPM space of three dimensions, you know? Now your company acquires a bunch of new tracks, right? And mm. for like the last year, it was like almost all of your catalog had metal. So the BPMs were all above 100. But you start to acquire a doom metal or like a lo-fi chill catalog. And right. so suddenly you get a bunch of very low BPMs. And if you think about the clustering or the like where your centers are or your centroids now exist in this feature space, they're going to start to shift over time. Like, actually, this isn't even a good example, but let's say that you use a non-deterministic dimension. Like, this is a really good one. One of your features, let's add a fourth feature. So we have four dimensions now. BPM, word count, and track duration. And suddenly you want to know the the rank in a popularity chart Mm. that changes every day. Now, every time you redo your vector space, you're going to get a whole new position, right? Like right. you're going to shift around every single day you train. Yeah, that's, mm. that's a good point because you have three that are constant and one that is fungible there. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, what's, and your tracks are going to move around. And yeah. when you do a nearest neighbor the following day, and, and it's weird because it's only one of the four, right? But imagine mm. that you have more than one feature that moves around every day. I'd imagine that would give you sort of interesting results, but it would also be self-reinforcing, wouldn't it? It could, unless you use a third-party popularity chart, like you use a billboard chart or something. Right, right. yeah. Right. But it could get a, to exactly the point that there are feedback loops as well created mm-hmm. in these systems that, like, you could have a feature that's badly selected that tends mm-hmm. to always put something on top as the first result. Right. Maybe you have a bug in your feature generation scheme. And now you've self-reinforced this one track always appearing at the beginning of everything. Right. We have just a few minutes left. Omar, I wanted to ask one quick question before I take it to the outro. You know, you mentioned that you've worked on recommender systems for a long time, some in the more traditional sense. Now you're leaning more into AIML, but you're not yourself, you know, like a a research scientist or, or expert. What are some of the things you've had to learn over the last year or two, tools and technologies you picked up, languages, ways of thinking that you would suggest to folks listening is useful. You know, if your company now is saying, look, we got to get Gen AI into our organization or we want to make sure we're staying current, what are the things people, in your opinion, should learn or things you learned that were helpful to you, I should say? You know, the thing that comes to mind first is the importance of understanding how data pipelines and and what you could kind of call data engineering works regardless of your domain. Mm -hmm. So like, even if you're like, I'm a back-end engineer or I'm a front-end engineer, the importance of the fact that models are, are like big hungry, it's like a big data hungry robot, if you will. And how you schedule those, how models train and how they get consumed in reality, in the real world, has like a ton of complexity in the data engineering side. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm actually working with Scala this week, and I haven't really worked with it very much in the past. Mm-hmm. And it's funny how, like, I just can't avoid, like, something like Scala, but it's not always just Scala, but essentially, you can never avoid having to work on a data pipeline, regardless of your domain. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Ryan and I had a conversation with some folks from Intuit, 
who were on the data science team and then sort of charged with helping to build, uh, you know, their, their AI uh, system. And they said that they felt they had a good grounding coming from data pipelines and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. And to your point, I know Ryan and I have talked to some folks about, hey, like you're just getting started with this new tech. You're going to need to learn about, do I want to build a model, fine tune a model? Do I need a vector database and embedding? Right. If you had, for example, the one where every week it's got to repopulate based on the billboard chart, mm-hmm. that's a very mm-hmm. interesting data problem. And you don't want it to be too expensive or time consuming, right? So that it can't get refreshed on a weekly basis for Absolutely. 100 million users. And, and that's another point about costs. Like, it's actually really funny how a really like dumb system that's really cheap <laughs> can sometimes outperform a very costly, like, mm. you know, model. And for example, you can make a data pipeline that reads like all of your databases every hour and then recalculates model. But at the end of the day, if it doesn't really give you better recommendations than our, our simple BPM example, you're kind of wasting a lot of money and time and, and understanding that what's a good data pipeline and which one's worthwhile, worth its cost is really important. Right, right. Yeah, I've seen some funny examples recently. People being like, oh, we just kind of like did a few extra things with this old BERT model and uh, turned out way better than all that fancy LLM stuff. So thanks uh-huh. for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I hear stories like that all the time. And, yeah. and I think that understanding that cost-benefit analysis, if you will, of the, the technology solution is really important. Cool. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, We appreciate it. Let's shout out someone from the Stack Overflow community who came on and helped to spread a little knowledge. A great question badge awarded to XJI one hour ago. What's the difference between a Docker image's image ID and its digest? If you've ever wondered, as over 30,000 people have, we got an answer for you. I'm Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow. Find me on X at Ben Popper or hit us up, podcast at Stack Overflow. Questions, suggestions, or if you're a listener and you want to come on and chat, uh, you work in engineering or software, let's do it. I'm Ryan Donovan. I edit the blog here at Stack Overflow. You can find it at stackoverflow.blog. And if you want to reach out to me, you can find me on X at Arthur Donovan. I'm Omar Delarosa, and I'm a backend engineer at Spotify on the personalization team. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.